very much. Well, thank you so much. Well, it, it's great to be back with you. Uh, for those of you who I don't know, I thought I'd just show you a picture of my wife and kids. Here they are. Um, there they are. And um, maybe I'll just tell you a little story um, to help us get to know each other. Uh, when my wife, Julia, was expecting our fourth child, uh, it was all happening very fast. She goes into labor, and it's happening so fast that we do something we'd never done before. We call an ambulance, and as we're racing in the ambulance to the hospital, it occurs to me in the back of the ambulance, we don't have another girl's name, if it is going to be another girl, because we have used up all our girl's names on our first three daughters. And so you may be amused to know that looking for a bit of last-minute inspiration for a name, I ask the ambulance lady, by the way, what's your name? And she said, Tanith. I said, pardon? She said, Tanith. I said, oh, um, how do you spell that? She said, T-A-N-I-T-H. She said, do you know what it means? I said, no. She said, it means the serpent lady. <laughs> so, we called our fourth daughter, Emma. Anyway, uh, just to introduce our, our subject uh, for this morning, um, my wife, Julia, her parents live in, in, a, in a rather affluent rural part of Surrey. And uh, there's this friend they've got uh, called Angela. And at this particular village in Surrey, there's only one bus a day. And Angela is waiting for the bus. But on this particular day, it was a snowy, cold day. The bus doesn't come. So... There's a couple of other ladies, they're also at the bus stop. Angela doesn't know these two. So these three are, are, are trying to keep warm, waiting for the bus. There's a bit of ice on the road. Angela thinks, maybe the bus has been cancelled. Maybe the bus just isn't, isn't going to come. So Angela's about to give up and go home when, at that moment, a car pulls up and there's a woman driving this car. She winds down her window and she calls out, do you want a lift? Angela thinks... Oh, yeah, I really do want a lift. So Angela gets into this lady's car. In fact, the other two ladies that she doesn't know, they get into the back seat as well. So now, picture the scene. This woman is driving her car along the road. There's three women on the back seat. Angela's in the middle. Somebody Angela doesn't know on the right-hand side. Somebody else Angela doesn't know on the left-hand side. But Angela says the thing is, as they're driving along, no one said anything. There's no conversation for five minutes. Five minutes later, they've now been driving along the four of them for ten minutes. Still, no one has said anything. At which point, the lady in Angela's right, she starts talking to the driver. It's obvious these two already know each other. And then the lady in Angela's left-hand side, she joins in. It's obvious... She also knows the driver. She also knows the lady on Angela's right-hand side. These three all know each other. And that's when the horrible, dawning realization comes to Angela that what has really happened here is that this lady's been driving her car along the road, and as she passes the bus stop, she's seen two of her friends. 
she winds down her window and calls out to her two friends, do you want a lift? And as her two friends get into her car, this random other person gets into the car as well. But you see, because they lived in this particular part of Surrey, nobody said anything. Oh, it's all very awkward. We haven't been introduced. Oh, but let's just drive along anyway and not say anything. I just want to say, that's not normal. You know, in every other part of Britain, for example, here in Crawley, if, if you'd been in the car, you would have said, oh, well, you know, we actually all know each other, but hey, do you want a lift as well? Where, where can we drop you? But no, because, because they lived in this particular part of Surrey, they just drove along in total silence. And folks, we think it's normal that one of those ladies should have said something. In the same way, when God encourages us to speak, when Christ calls us to go into all the world and make disciples, God knows exactly who you are. He knows what you're like. I mean, he knows how you feel right now about this subject. And he believes in you, he backs you, he empowers you to communicate the gospel in your world. So we can speak good news. We can be secure in the knowledge that God loves us. He's proved that when Jesus came to die on the cross for us. God is on our side. So yeah, it's true. In the Bible, Jesus calls us to give away the good news, to not keep it to ourselves. But as we do that, we're going to see this morning that there are huge advantages for us. There are many benefits for me, of living a life, there are huge advantages for you of living a life that is directed towards unconvinced people. Let me just say something about this rather unusual choice of subject. Hey, we don't tell other people the good news for our benefit. When it comes to obeying Christ's commands, we do that because Christ is the King. But just for today, just for the next few minutes, I just want to focus on those incidental fringe benefits for us. So the more that we focus on unconvinced people, five benefits for us. First, first benefit, there'll be more joy in our lives. I was talking to this woman in our church, and um, she's called Heather. Heather's friends with these two sisters. One of these sisters is called Sarah. She's the older one. The younger one's called Anna. And Heather invites Sarah and Anna along to our church Alpha Course. Now, just so happens, neither Sarah nor Anna would have called themselves Christians. Um, Sarah's job is she's a trainee lawyer. The morning after she gets the invite from Heather to come to our church, Alpha, the morning after, Sarah's job that morning is to take some legal documents that she's kept in her flat overnight to the courthouse. Um, so on the one hand, you could say, this is a fairly straightforward job. I mean, it is literally moving some papers from A to B. On the other hand, Sarah's boss has explained that this trial can't start until these documents arrive in the courthouse. So Sarah thinks to herself, don't panic. I will simply set two alarms. I'll set my two alarms earlier than I normally would. Sarah even arranges for her friend to phone her just in case her two alarms fail. That morning, everything goes fine. She wakes up on time. She gets to the bus stop. As she gets to the bus stop, overnight, the council have coned off the bus lane. There's a sign up saying that the council are replacing the Victorian sewers. There won't be any buses running in the bus lane today. In the bus lane today. Sarah thinks to herself, don't panic. 
I will simply walk to the underground tube station. So she walks to the underground tube station. When she gets there, the gates are locked. There's a sign up, a whiteboard, London Underground regrets to inform you the Northern Line is part suspended today. She thinks to herself, don't panic. I will simply walk to the Overland train station. Quite a long walk. She goes for this quite long walk to the Overland train station. When she gets to the Overland train station, her heart sinks. People are queuing to get in to the Overland train station. So she joins the end of the queue. She has to queue through the ticket barriers. She has to queue down the steps. She has to queue even when she's on the platform. She has to queue on the platform as the trains are coming until eventually she gets to the front of the platform. She's definitely going to get the next train. She looks at the board to see when it's due to arrive. She looks at the time and thinks, I don't think a train arriving then is going to be able to get me with these papers to the courthouse in time before the trial starts. And she does get to become rather concerned. And at this point, she thinks, what would my Christian friend Heather do if Heather were in this situation? She thinks Heather would pray to God. Now, Sarah has never prayed a prayer to God as an adult before, but she thinks, you know what? I'm going to do that. I'm going to pray to God. So she's standing on the platform. She closes her eyes and she starts to pray, not out loud, she prays silently, and she prays, Hello, God. Uh, it's me, Sarah. <laughs> Guess if you're God, you probably knew that. Yeah. So, um, so I'd be really, really, really grateful if somehow, uh, God, uh, you could get these papers to uh, the courthouse before the trial begins. I don't actually know how you would do that, but if it's possible, I'd be really, really grateful. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, yours sincerely, uh, over and out, uh, amen, Sarah, she prays. She opens her eyes. She looks at the man who's standing next to her on the platform. The man standing next to her on the platform is the barrister. The barrister who she's supposed to give the papers to at the courthouse. She's so shocked that she doesn't actually say anything. She just... <laughs> hands the papers over. He looks at the papers. He immediately recognizes the case, and he says, Oh, what a marvelous service. <laughs> That's really rather good. I'm very impressed. Now I can prepare on the train. It's really, do pass on my thanks to the partners. It's really rather good. Now I can prepare on the train. What a marvellous service. Very, very impressed. Thank you very much. So the train arrives. The barrister gets on the train. And Sarah's left thinking, now come on. I mean, come on. I mean, what are the chances? I mean, really, what? I mean, what? actually, what are the chances? What are the chances that the first time that I ever pray a prayer to God as an adult, that at that moment... By chance, the one person on the planet who could have solved my problem at that moment would just happen to be standing right next to me. So you, you won't be surprised to hear that Sarah and her sister Anna turned up at week one of our Alpha course. That's when I met them. And they came back next week, and they came back every week. And then both Sarah and Anna, they both came 
on the weekend away, at, towards the end of our Alpha course. And on that weekend, both Sarah and Anna, they both made a decision to follow Jesus Christ. And then sometime after that, both Sarah and Anna, they both got baptized at our church. And then sometime after that, both Sarah and Anna, they both married young men in our church. They, they didn't marry the same young men. <laughs> That would obviously be a bizarre end to the story. But no, they, they married different young men. And so anyway, I asked Heather. Do you remember Heather at the start of the story? Heather was the young lady in our church who invited these sisters. She invited her friends to the Alpha launch. I went back to Heather and said, hey, it's absolutely amazing what happened, yeah? And here's what Heather said about it. She said, you know, the more I prayed for Sarah to know Christ, I found myself thinking about how amazing it would be for Sarah to have eternal life. She said, praying regularly for Sarah brought the wonder of my own salvation front and center in a new way. Heather said, focusing on lost people has reminded me that all of my problems are in the context of me being guaranteed certain of a place in heaven. Heather said, do you know, I found it hard to stay offended, to stay upset about things when I'm continually having my mind flooded with the fact I'm going to be spending most of my time in heaven. She said, thinking evangelistically has built in my mind a mountain of gratitude for my own salvation. Heather said, it's hard for the seeds of bitterness and disappointment to take root in a thankful heart. Colossians 1.27 says that Christ in you is the hope of glory. And this is an exciting, empowering verse because it shows how much God is with you. How you and Christ are now part of the same team. I mean, can you see how important you are? Can you see how valuable you are? You are the kingdom of God. When your alarm goes off tomorrow morning, when you hit the shower, Christ in you is up. And the kingdom of darkness is not happy. Because the devil would be delighted if there were no Christians in education, and no Christians in business, and no Christians in healthcare, and no Christians in local government, and no Christians in national government, and no Christians in business, no Christians in the media, no Christians in sport. The devil would be delighted if all Christians were to live in cozy Christian ghettos. Why? Because the devil knows in John chapter 17 that Jesus did not pray, Oh, Father, Please take the nice Christians out of the nasty world. No, the devil knows in John 17, Jesus prayed, Father, keep the Christians in the world. Because you are the kingdom of God. Wherever you go, God goes. Wherever you are working now, God is working. When you enter your workplace tomorrow morning, Christ in you arrives. Jesus is going to work tomorrow through you. Benefit number two. We will live with a greater sense of our value, dignity, and purpose. We are therefore now Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. One of our four kids came home from school one time. She's got this invitation to a multicultural fundraising evening in the school hall. At this event, I get talking to a man who is wearing a Mexican hat, a Hawaiian shirt, and a grass skirt. And I say to him, 
wow, I say, where are you from? And he said, Iraq. <laughs> like he really was from Iraq. Uh, so we then have a, a conversation about recent events in Iraq. There then follows a whole hour of multicultural dancing. Sorry, th this, this is my multicultural dancing. We're literally dancing for a whole hour around the school hall um, doing this multicultural dancing. And then I bump into him a second time, and I say to him, would you say that everyone in Iraq is a Muslim? He doesn't answer, but he looks at me very intently, and he kind of beckons in a kind of a secretive, kind of furtive kind of a way towards the bar. So he then walks off towards the bar, doesn't say anything. So he goes off towards the bar. I follow him towards the bar. He arrives at the bar. He leans on the bar. He looks both ways. He checks that the coast is clear. He says, I have completely rejected Islam. I lean on the bar. I look both ways. <laughs> I check that the coast is clear. I say, so have I. He said, no way. I said, yeah, for real. He said, well, that's an amazing coincidence. I said, yes, it is. He said, well, we've got to talk about this. I said, yes, we have. He said, well, why don't you come over with your wife and your children? Why don't you come over and my wife, Mira, and I, we will cook you a full Kurdistani dinner. He said, why don't you come over on Saturday at 3 p.m. and we will have dinner? That's the invitation. Okay, so when Saturday comes around, uh, just to give you some background, on Saturdays, I am placed in sole charge of our four children. And the way that I cope with this responsibility is I take them swimming, yeah? Family splash. There are other dads in the room. We all do the same thing, okay? Family splash. So we go swimming, but it's quite complicated at the end because, like, they've all got long hair. I don't have any hair, as you can see. So it's like the, 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 the hair dryer and the brush. It takes a long time to get through the change rooms, yeah? Other dads can relate to this. So by the time we get home, we're running quite late, and I'm thinking, I don't have time to go down Fulham Palace Road to Tesco's Express and buy the lunch, and then bring the lunch back and make the lunch for us to be able to get over to Salah's flat by 3 p.m. So I say to my kids, hey, let's all go to McDonald's. And the kids go, yay, Daddy McDonald's, that's a great call, yay, Daddy McDonald's. So, we go to McDonald's. At McDonald's, I have a Big Mac, a large fries, and a large strawberry milkshake. This is relevant to the rest of the story. Okay. We then arrive on time, on time, at Salah's flat. Salah's wife, Mira, she's a doctor. She opens the door. She says, welcome. Welcome to our home. Let us all go through and have dinner. I'm like... What, now? <laughs> I thought the invitation was, come over at 3 p.m. and we will have dinner. Dinner being an evening meal. At some later unspecified time in the evening, we will have dinner. But no, the actual words that were spoken were, come over at 3 p.m. and we will have dinner. Dinner being a 3 p.m. meal. But I am already full of Ronald McDonald. <laughs> and so she opens the door to the living room. There's quite a large table. And there are trays of food on that she's bringing in other trays. Regional dishes from different parts of Kurdistan are coming in. And so as I look at this table, there is only one chair. And then they explain that as the guest of honor, <laughs> I am to sit in the chair. 
and that none of them are allowed to eat until I have started eating. So I sit in my chair. I feel like a king. Various women standing around. There I am in my chair. But then I think about my Big Mac, my large fries, my large strawberry milkshake. But then I think of that verse in the New Testament when Jesus commands his followers, eat whatever is set before you. (laughs) And I think of how when I was a young Christian, I promised to obey every command in the Gospels. I can tell you, at the end of this meal, I've never felt... I've never felt so bloated in all my life. And at the end of this meal, I'm kind of, I can feel myself physically expanding inside Salah's flat. And I'm sort of rolling around, sort of passing in and out of consciousness in my inebriated state. And it's actually a bit of a shame because Salah's explaining to me, he's describing to me his profound intellectual rejection of Islam. Salah is complaining to me that he's got a spiritual void in his life. He's asking me, can I help? Wow. And I tell you, for the conversation that followed, I felt privileged. I felt honored to be in the room for that conversation. We are therefore now Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us. You know, at the end of this visit, uh, we got up to leave. In fact, it was quite hard for me to get up to leave. Um, but I, I'm, I'm kind of leaning. I can't even stand up at this point. I'm leaning against the, the wall in the corridor. And I'll never forget what Salah says. He says, we want to be with you. We want you to be our friends. Now, all I did was I agreed to go to the school multicultural fundraising evening But God brought someone from Iraq who he knew was spiritually open and spiritually searching. At the gym, I needed to go to the gym after this episode. At the gym, I get talking to this uh, a non-Christian friend of mine called Chris. Chris says, what have you been up to this week? I say, Chris, preparing a message to help Christians reach unconvinced seekers with the good news about Jesus. He says, he says, can I give you some advice? He says, tell them not to say the good book says this and the good book says that because people like me, Adrian, are cynical about religion. I said, Chris, hey, most people I meet are cynical about religion. But most people I meet, Chris, feel positive about relationships. Most people I meet, Chris, are cynical about religion, but they feel positive about Jesus of Nazareth as a person. Most people I meet, Chris, have a high opinion of Jesus as a person. I said, the great thing is, Chris, what's on offer is not religion. What's on offer, Chris, is a relationship with Jesus that goes on forever. He said, oh, he said, I can see how that could be appealing. I said, Chris, do you believe in God? He said, well, he said, that depends. I said, on what? He said, well, on where I am. I said, what on earth do you mean? He said, well, when I get out on my bicycle and I'm cycling out of London and I get into the countryside and I can see the trees and the grass and the hills all around me, he said, I cannot bring myself to believe that it's all just a total accident. I then asked Chris my favorite question. 
I said, Chris, do you believe that you're alive for a reason? He said, yes. But I've absolutely no idea what it is. And again, I felt honored. I felt privileged to be in the room for the conversation that followed. We are therefore now Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us. And folks, you have been appointed as an ambassador for Christ. And God is on your side. And all the resources of heaven have been placed at our disposal. We've been promised that when we do speak up on his behalf, God is going to back us up. We will be amazed to see how much the Holy Spirit will help us. Benefit number three. We will see ourselves making a difference. Now you love this. You love it when the God who really exists comes into somebody else's life through you. You love that. The God who's really there, God's love comes into somebody else's life through you. You love that. Yeah? What a thrilling idea. God comes, the love of God comes into somebody else's life through you. It's as we go that Jesus says, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus said, look, I haven't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus said, look, it's not the healthy who need a doctor. It's the sick. The Apostle Paul said, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Jesus said of himself, I have come to seek and to save the lost. We need to remember that Jesus made a conscious decision to hang out with unbelieving people. Jesus' reputation was, oh yeah, we've all heard of Jesus of Nazareth. Everybody's heard of him. Yeah, here's what we know about him. He's a glutton. Jesus, oh yeah, Jesus is a wine-bibber. Jesus, yeah, he's, he's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And people said that about Jesus because Jesus made a habit of deliberately spending time with irreligious people. So as soon as you and I, as soon as we even start praying for that unconvinced person, we're pointing ourselves in the same direction that Jesus pointed himself. We, we are lining ourselves up with the same line that Jesus lined himself up with. And as we prioritize unconvinced people, all the resources of heaven swing in behind us and God himself is there cheering us on. It's just as clear when Jesus says to his followers in John 20, 21, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Now I find that um, once you have become a Christian, it's a relatively simple thing to believe that God the Father sent Jesus the Son. But what really is a delicious, sumptuous thought is to think that in the same way as the Father sent the Son, God is now sending you and me to the same way, in the same extent. Jesus says as much. When we overhear Jesus praying for you, when we overhear Jesus praying about you, this is John 17, 18, Jesus says, Father, as you have sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. In the same way and to the same extent that God sent Jesus in that way, Jesus is now sending you into your friendship circle of your family, 
your friends, your colleagues, your neighbors, those people who you know in your world who don't yet know Christ. As much as the Father was with Jesus, the Bible says Jesus is now with you. Let's look at the fourth benefit, which is that you'll become a stronger person with a fuller understanding of Christ. Philemon verse 6 says that it's through being active in sharing our faith that you and I become increasingly aware of how great our inheritance in Christ really is. For example, maybe I could just tell you the story of a a couple in our church called Richard and Jill. Uh, And Richard and Jill were active in sharing their faith with this couple. This is an old photo of Paul and Helena Handley. And, And when this photo was taken, neither Paul nor Helena at this time would have called themselves Christians. Paul was a a 35-year-old atheist. He was an insurance broker. He had a very successful career uh, in the city of London. Paul and Helena are married. They've got three lovely sons. They live in quite a nice uh, house uh, in Caterham in Surrey. Uh, Paul is one of those people that you sometimes come across in life who's strongly opposed to Christianity. Today, Paul is the pastor of a church in Cornwall. And actually, this is the second church that Paul and Helena have led. And if you're anything like me, you're kind of curious to know, how do you go from being a 35-year-old convinced atheist to becoming the pastor of two different Christian churches? I mean, how does that transition actually happen? Well, here's what happened. One day, Paul and Helena go for a walk in Caterham in the park. As they're walking along the path, they see this couple from our church, Richard and Jill, and they are sitting on the grass. And Paul recognizes that this is the Christian couple because, remember I told you that Paul's wife Helena is a nurse, yeah? Well, Richard and Jill, Jill is a nurse. They work at the same hospital. And Jill from our church, she has been active in sharing her faith with Helena And Helena started to ask some questions, and Jill's been answering the questions. Paul, Helena's husband, realizes this is the Christian couple. Yeah? So what does Paul decide to do? He decides to blank them. He knows that they're there, but he just keeps walking along in a straight line like this. But of course, after a while, there's been too much eye contact. So Paul has to do that thing where he says, Oh, (laughs) almost walked straight by you. (laughs) I didn't see you there. How are you doing? It's great to see you, Paul says. And as he walks over to them, Richard and Jill are sitting there on the grass, and Richard and Jill are having a picnic. Paul and Helena are holding picnic boxes. And so, the social rules of Surrey (laughs) dictate that Paul and Helena have to go and sit down and have their picnic with Richard and Jill. And Paul is thinking, how did, I, how did I get stuck with the Christians? How did this happen? Anyway, after he sat there for a couple of minutes, Paul thinks, you know what? I can have some fun. I know what I'll do. If they bring up the subject of whatever it is the Christians talk about, I mean, they talk about God or Jesus or whatever the Christians talk about, all I will do is I can just point out the factual errors. I can highlight the logical inconsistencies. I'll be able to tie them up in their own words, Paul says. And wouldn't you just know, two minutes into the conversation, Paul's wife Helena asks Jill a question about her Christian faith, and for the next hour and a half, they talk about God and Jesus and such subjects. 
And Paul says, I remember walking back to the car an hour and a half later at the end of the conversation. I remember thinking to myself, I knew that it would be easy to win the conversation with the Christians. But Paul thinks it was even easier than I thought it would be. So he puts the picnic boxes in the boot of the car. He closes the boot of the car. Paul says, I went to the driver's seat. I put my key in the ignition and I heard myself say these words. Helena, darling, you know that credit card bill that I told you yesterday was this much? I'm ever so sorry, darling, I lied. It was much more. It was actually this much. There then follows a, a full and frank exchange of views between the married couple. Anyway, when that dies down, Paul drives home. When he drives home, he pulls up on the drive, and he just feels this compelling urge to go into his study. He goes into his study. He gets out a pad of blank A4 lined paper and just starts writing down everything that he can think of that he's ever done wrong. He then goes back into his study the next day and the next day. He goes in for three consecutive days. When I met Paul, I asked him, why did it take you three days? He said, I had 35 years of stuff to write down. He said, it was just like being sick. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, I knew once I got it all out, I'd feel better. So, I, you already know the end of the story. I've already told you that Paul ends up becoming the pastor of two different churches. First time I ever meet Paul and his wife and kids is I'm on the welcome team, yet standing there at the door saying hello, greeting people on a Sunday morning. As I'm standing there, this lovely family arrive. I think, I'm pretty sure I'd never seen these folks before. I introduced myself. They introduced themselves. I said, oh, do you know anyone here? Oh, yes, we know Richard and Jill. Oh, I know Richard and Jill. And then I said, well, do you mind me asking, is this your first time here at church? Paul says, yes, it is our first time ever at church. We've just become Christians earlier this week. I thought, what a great answer. Anyway, um, so I then ask him, do you mind me asking you, how did that happen? He then tells me the story that I just told you. And towards the end of the story, folks, I am absolutely fascinated to know. I asked Paul, Paul, what did Richard and Jill say to you that afternoon in the park that made you want to confess about the credit card bill and then write down for three consecutive days in a pad of A4 paper every single thing that you'd ever done wrong? What was it? that they said to you, Paul, in the park that day that made you want to leave atheism at the age of 35 and become a Christian. Paul, what did they say? And he replied, oh, he said, it wasn't anything they said. I said, well, what was it? He said, it was them. It was something about them. Paul would now say, it was Christ in them. Yeah. Folks, this is the first conversation, Paul's first ever Sunday. We're literally in the foyer having this conversation. I'm on the welcome team. Eight years later, Paul Hanley was the pastor of our church. And as I said, he's now leading this church in, in Cornwall. Paul said that the real Jesus, the Jesus who really is alive was working through Richard and Jill to create within Paul a desire that he'd never had before. Paul wanted to feel clean. Paul wanted to feel washed. Paul wanted to feel pure. He hadn't felt that craving before. 
But Paul and Helena found out that summer that there's more to life than being happily married. There's more to life than being happily married with kids. There's more to life than having a successful career. They found out that summer that there's a real God who really loves you. But let's just think about it for one moment from Richard and Jill's point of view. All Jill was doing was she was being active in sharing her faith with her friend Helena. But now look what's come out of that. Jill would say, through being active in sharing my faith, Philemon verse 6, I've now got a fuller understanding of every good thing that I have in Christ. Fifth and final thing this morning, folks, is that we will become, fifth benefit, we will become more like Jesus. In lots of ways, but here's just one. We will become more like Jesus in one respect. Um, Jesus drew people to God by telling stories. Yeah? So as Jesus makes you increasingly more like him, don't be too surprised if you find that you get more and more pleasure through storytelling. People love to listen to Jesus' stories. The Bible says that the common people heard Jesus gladly. Now, somebody could hear that and say, oh, I get that. I understand the importance of storytelling in our culture. But here's the thing. You might say, I don't really have a story. You might say, I don't really have like a testimony of before I became a Christian and then after I became a Christian. Because you might say, look, the truth is that I was brought up in a Christian home. You might say, I was only eight years old when I became a Christian, so I don't really have a dramatic before story. And you know, there are some Christians who do have a dramatic before story. I find often Christians from America <laughs> will have a very dramatic before story. Maybe you've heard these stories, and they might go something like this. This is how the story starts. Dude, I had a thousand dollar a day crack cocaine habit. And I was raised in the ghetto. And my life was a blur, a blur of gang violence. And I was being chased by the feds. But then one night, in prison, she... Now, you can't say that. You can't say that because the truth is that before you became a Christian, you were attending a Church of England primary school in Guildford. <laughs> now, my wife, Julia is the most effective personal evangelist I know. My wife, Julia, has led more of her friends to Christ than anyone else I know. And yet, Julia grew up in a wonderful, loving Christian family. She, of all people, could very easily say, I don't really have a testimony. So what does she do? Does she make one up? Did she say, yeah, 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 I was abandoned by my parents at birth. And I was raised by a pack of wolves. And it's when I was running with the wolves, that's when I first learned to hunt and kill with my bare hands. And it was around that time that I first discovered voodoo. Did she say that? No. No, the truth is, folks, that Julia didn't grow up in the Bronx. She never saw action in Vietnam. Before she came to Christ, she attended Croydon High School for Girls. And about the most rebellious thing that my wife has ever done was once when she handed in her Latin homework late. 
So what is her 45-second faith story? Here's what she says. As a child, I worried a lot, even though I had nothing to worry about. Like many people, I was a born worrier. My parents brought me up to believe the Bible. I became a Christian age 12. I was baptized age 13. When I was 17 years old, I got glandular fever and I missed a lot of school. I could have got really worried. But I felt God's presence and I learned not to get worried about things. I had this amazing sense of peace. I went to university and I could easily have turned my back on Jesus, but I found that I didn't want to. God had done something real in my life. I was a born warrior, but God gave me peace. Folks, one day there will be so many people in heaven that it will be impossible for anyone to count them. That's what the book of Revelation says. By that stage, there will be at least one person from every single language group, from every single nation, from every single tribe, from every single ethnic group, all around the throne of God in heaven. That means that between today and that day, there are definitely going to be millions and millions of people who are going to come to get to know God personally and put their trust in Jesus Christ. You and I, we get to be part of seeing that happen. Folks, you and I get to play our part in the most wonderful thing that will ever happen in the future history of our world. And we can have the time of our lives in the process. We get to enjoy that journey. Right now, you and I, we're in the most glorious adventure. God bless you. It's been great being with you. I'll see you next time.